Hi, you're listening to Delusional Optimism with Dr. B, where we explore human resiliency and learn how people thrive even after adversity. We break down the complexities of the human brain so concepts are simple and relatable. It's fun and empowering to understand how your earliest experiences influence your relationships today. What makes you tick? Dr. B is a speaker, trainer, and consultant who understands emotions and human development from the inside out. Let's dive into today's episode. Here's Dr. B. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about spanking. If you're interested in furthering this conversation, please email me at contact at drbconnections.com. Or if you want to know more about me, go to my website at www.drbconnections.com. Now, let's get started. Today's episode, we're going to be talking about spanking. And the question is, is spanking harmful? Well, most people don't want to hear the answer to this question. So I hope you're listening with open ears and an open mind. 50 years of research says, yes, spanking is harmful. It's harmful to our physical and our mental health. So if we know this so powerfully through the data, why do people still spank? Why why do we still why are we still asking this question? And people really aren't looking for a new answer. They they want to keep spanking. This is what people say about spanking. I've taught parenting for I taught parenting for gosh, over a dozen years. And I got the same responses over and over and again, over and over again from class to class. And I've also heard this just in general across the board. So what people say about spanking is when you ask them, you know, why do you spank? And they say things like, well, children need to learn respect. So I'm just going to go through these one by one. Children need to learn respect. So you're going to teach a person to respect you by hitting them. Think about that for a minute. Have you ever been in an adult relationship, say at work or at school, in college or whatever, and your boss or your teacher teaches you to respect them by hitting you? Doesn't make any sense. So, and I'm sure that there will be naysayers about that one, and I'd love to hear from you. So shoot me an email or leave me a comment somewhere. Another thing that people say when you ask, you know, why do you spank? They say, well, it's the only thing that works. It's, it's, it's the only thing that gets the behavior to stop immediately. Okay, so that can be legitimate. If somebody starts hitting you to stop you to do a behave, stop you from doing something, yeah, it's you're going to stop doing it because somebody yanked you and is spanking you. But that doesn't, that's not really the definition of spanking working to quit a particular behavior. We're going to dig a little deeper into that one in a minute. And the most popular one ever is, well, I was spanked and I turned out fine. And this This one's a hard one because everybody believes that they turned out fine as a result of spanking. And I would argue that people turn out, quote unquote, fine, not because they were spanked, 
but because they were fortunate enough to turn out fine for other reasons, that there were other contributing factors that led to, quote unquote, turning out fine. And I would also argue that as a clinical psychologist and having met lots and lots of people who have been spanked over their lifetime, not beaten, just regular, you know, what everybody likes to say, just a regular spanking, that many, many, many people suffer from anxiety, depression, and other mental health issues related to those experiences of being spanked or their relation relationship difficulties that are impacted from their early or early childhood experiences of being spanked or having harsh discipline. So the last one for now is, oh, I spank, but I never spank when I'm mad. B.S., Nobody spanks a kid when they're not mad because if you're cool, calm, and collected and thinking from your rational mind, then you would talk yourself out of spanking somebody. So, and if that's not the case, then there's probably a different problem there because when you are cool, calm, and collected and looking at all the important factors of a child's behavior and the need to resolve something, Spanking would never, ever be your first choice. There are, are there are so many better choices that are healthier, that make more sense, and that are just better overall in terms of teaching children to behave the way you want them to, that you would never pick spanking unless you were in a more irrational part of your mind when you were spanking somebody. So... It's unfortunate, but this fact is true. People believe their own personal experience as an individual over the accumulated facts or the accumulated data of an entire group. So what that means is that people say things like, oh, I was fine, I turned out fine, and I was spanked. That's an individual experience, but collectively we know that spanking has a slew of consequences that are negative that none of us would wish upon children or people. We wouldn't spank if we really just took into account the information that was gathered from the data that we have from studying spanking for almost, gosh, I want to say 50 years. We have to dig deeper. We have to be honest in order to grow and change. So lives really do depend on this particular topic. And it's a hot topic, folks. Like there is no way, I've never talked about parenting or never talked about spanking in a parenting class or in a parenting group or even in a conversation with people about just parenting in general where spanking does not elicit a lot of emotions and a lot of big feelings in people on both on on really both sides but particularly on the side to defend the act of spanking. Okay, let's dig into some research and some neuroscience. So in this study at the University of Texas Austin, there were 20,000 kindergartners who were asked if they were spanked at home. Of course, everybody participated in this study, you know, it was it went through IRB, which is the process to allow studying of children and, 
and adults to make sure they're not harmed. But so anyway, out of the group, they take the whole group of kids who are African-American or black, and 89% of the kids in this kindergarten group were spanked. Of all the white children out of the 29 out of the 20,000 kids, 79% of the kids were spanked. Out of the entire 20,000 group, there's a, a pocket of them that are Hispanic, 80% of those children were spanked. Asian, 73% of the children were spanked. So what that means is that spanking is a norm. I mean, over 75%, close to 90% in some of these cases. People accept and believe that spanking is okay and a a perfectly fine practice in terms of disciplining or punishing children. What we call this, it's a mainstream parenting practice. Corporal punishment is a mainstream parenting practice in the U.S. and as well as other countries, but it's also banned in certain countries. So when a population actually embraces spanking and embraces spanking from anywhere from a light tap open hand on the bottom, which is the lightest version of definition of spanking, all the way to a full-blown, you know, whipping with whatever, a belt or something else or a switch or a stick or a, oh, how about the one, um, a wooden spoon Something along those lines. I've known people who've like carried a wooden spoon in their purse just to scare their kids while they're out and about so they'll behave. But the more children who are spanked makes it seem like it's normal. And the less social stigma there is attached to it. So if there's lots of people who spank their kids, nobody says, oh my gosh, you spank your kids? Well, of course I spank my kids because everybody spanks their kids. It's no big deal. Why don't you spank your kids? Maybe they would behave better. So, but the truth is they don't actually behave better. And there are much, much more severe consequences to spanking in the long run. So what we know from research and from data and studying this for over decades that children who are spanked have a lo- have lower social emotional development in three and four-year-olds. So three and four-year-olds are like, they're just coming out of toddlerhood when they're kind of in the no, no, me, me, I'm, everything is about just them. And when you hit three to four, you become much more social and are interested in other people. But three and four-year-olds who are spanked or children who are spanked prior to that, when they're one, two, three, four, actually have lower social emotional development than children who aren't spanked. Spanking also, we know this, leads to more anxiety and more depression in adults and teenagers. People always argue this one. However, it's really well, well established in the research that children who are spanked exhibit more aggressive behaviors towards others. So they are more aggressive. It makes perfect sense. If your role models are hitting in order to get what they want you to do, why would you not model that behavior? You don't really have any other choices. It's not like if your parents can't think of a different alternative than hitting you to get you to do something, then why would you as a child be able to figure your way out of that box 
and come up with a better idea to get somebody to do what you want them to do other than hitting them. It makes sense. There's also a higher incidence of antisocial behavior. And so think about this one in terms of shame. The, The experience of being spanked makes people feel shame, like it's a shameful experience that somebody would think so little of you. Now, I'm, I say this because this is the perspective of a person being spanked, I think, that somebody thinks so little of you that they're going to hit you. They want to harm your body. And usually this person is the person who's supposed to protect you, love you, and care about you the most. So that creates this sense of shame. And that shame then creates the sense that you don't want to connect with other people. You're just not worthy of being a person. The other consequence of spanking is that there's physical injury, but also more important than that, there's mental health problems, mental health injuries. And those are even more powerful and long-lasting. So... In 2007, the American Academy of Pediatrics at a United Nations convention said that corporal punishment violates the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which protects children from all forms of physical and mental violence. So that's a pretty strong statement coming from the American Academy of Pediatrics. So if anybody says, oh yeah, my my pediatrician says it's okay to spank, well, that means your pediatrician is actually going against their major medical professional community's opinion. And so note to self, that's typically not what we want our professionals that we pay to do, to go against the research and recommendations of their professional organizations. What if they said, oh, you know, it's okay. We're, we, we normally treat strep throat with antibiotics, but now we're not going to do that anymore because I think that cat food works better. Okay, it doesn't make any sense, right? Well, right, it doesn't make any sense. You don't want somebody who's, who veers off track from the data and the research of their professional organizations. And this is a global organization. So, all right, the American Psychological Association, the APA, also has a totally admonished spanking. And they say, this is their quote, as a horrible thing that doesn't work. In the research in the psychology field or the psych field, leads to lower academic and health problems. And research shows that adults who are spanked regularly die at younger ages of cancer, heart disease, and respiratory illness. Sounds like spanking might be, in and of itself, a social determinant of health. We've been talking a lot about social determinants of health in our culture and environment lately. And spanking fits the fits the mold in terms of contributing to later problems down the road, like, oh, an adverse childhood experience leads to depression and anxiety or physical health problems later in life, heart disease, respiratory illness. 
Parents have been shown really to fall into three categories of parenting. Like if we just took all the parents in the world or all the parents in the U.S. and said, okay, let's see which category. You're only allowed to be in one of these three categories. Which one do you fall in? There's the mom, dad, or parents who have a perfectly plotted out chore chart and healthy snacks for rewards and understand everything about child development and that they go into category one. Then there's the just super crazy, horribly abusive parents that, you know, we find out, we read on the news or read in the newspaper or online or see on TV, you know, child kept in cage for 12 years or, you know, just some child poisoned or beaten or something horrible like that. That's the number two category, just extremely abusive. And then there's the three category, which is more, probably has more parents than, well, for sure it has more parents than the other group. And that's the somewhere in the middle. They're too lenient one day, and then they're too harsh the next day. These are the soup, these are inconsistent parents because people are, overworked, underpaid, burnt out, don't understand child development because we haven't really ever taught people about parenting and child development and what to expect from children at different ages and stages in their lives. And we talk about it all the time and we still don't really do anything differently or better in terms of this. We say, oh, you need to pass this test to drive a car, but you can have a baby and you don't need to know anything. They just have a baby and send you home with it with no instructions. Well, that's perfectly true, and we still do that exact same thing every single day. So it's important to remember, and if you think about that, like let's think about being too lenient. You say to a child, no, you can't have cookies, it's almost time for dinner, and they they sneak a cookie and you find out about it, and you're just like burnt and too tired to really do anything about it. So you ignore it and you just move on, go to dinner and that's it. And then three days down the road, child again says, you know, can I have a cookie? You say no. They sneak a cookie and now you're not as tired. Maybe it's on the weekend or whatever. And they get a spanking because they did this. They took a cookie when they weren't supposed to. Okay. Super confusing to have a behavior completely ignored and then have it be responded to very harshly on a different day. That's confusing for anybody and it's frustrating for people and it's really not fair. So what do we do with that? Like parents have a responsibility to be consistent and predictable and the best parenting strategies ever really the best living strategies, land in the zone of consistent and predictable. Because when you're consistent and predictable, that allows the brain of the child to build a consistent and predictable framework for what they're supposed to be doing, how they're supposed to get it done all all the time or on a fairly regular basis. And if they need help, they can ask for help. But when the answer is different every single time, that becomes confusing. And what we're doing as parents is we're creating a confused neuropathway about what happens 
when I don't listen to my parent who says no to a cookie and I take one anyway. So that says, oh, well, it doesn't really matter what I do because what they do is going to be random anyway. And guess what? They're right. So we want to raise children in a way that teaches them to be consistent, predictable, honest, contributing, healthy members of society. But how do we do that if we don't give them that sort of a roadmap and a path through our parenting? Remember child development, ages and stages matter. They matter so much. We have to support our overworked parents, especially during this crazy COVID-19, you know, frustrating, complicating, stressful environment that we're living in right now. Exhausted parents, confused parents by really providing healthy ways to manage the behavior of their kids, especially now that their kids are doing things differently too. Everybody's doing things differently. We're trying to manage school online. We're all trying to work in the same house when before people were dispersed to offices and classrooms and wherever they had to go in the day and they just came back at later at night and did whatever before they went to bed. So it's a stressful time and a frustrating time on top of it, especially economically and un- and in the realm of uncertainty. I did an episode on that a few, I don't know, a few episodes ago. So check that out if you want to know more about uncertainty. We don't like it. It's not helpful and we'd rather have bad information than not knowing what to expect. But right now we're living in, we don't know what to expect in so many different arenas in our lives. And recognizing that that's true for children too. They don't know what's going on. They don't know what to expect. So they're having to take their cues from their role models and the adults in their lives. And that's probably you as their parent. So what are some solutions? Why is this optimistic or how does this build resilience? In 1998, okay, so this is this is long before the convention in 2007. Nine years before that, the American Academy of Pediatrics gently recommended that parents not spank. So, but it hasn't changed because we're still here in 2020 and, you know, well over you know, or close to 80% of the population in the U.S. still believes that spanking is an okay parenting practice. Both and, we have to always think about both and in terms of how do we parent. We can love and appreciate our parents even though they may have done things wrong. So that's a both and way of thinking about spanking when we say something like, well, I was spanked and I turned out fine. If I say now that spanking is bad, then I'm being disrespectful to my parents and I don't want to do that. So how do I negotiate within my own brain that spanking is really not a healthy parenting practice, but it's what happened to me and So this is how we do it. We look at the both ands of a situation. You can love and appreciate your parents even though they've done some things wrong. B, 
because they didn't have the information. That's true across the lifespan. When we don't have information and we mess stuff up, then we say, oh, wow, I wish I knew that before and I would have done it differently. Well, now we do know what we didn't have before. We do know that spanking's harmful and yet we're still choosing to spank. Parents do the best they can with what they have. And so if they didn't have the information, then they just had their experience and that's why they chose to spank. But if you're listening to this podcast, or then you know now that that's inaccurate information. The other thing is that we can learn from our mistakes and make changes based on new information and science. Again, both and. The reason that spanking doesn't work is because it creates pain, it creates fear, and it creates confusion in children. It's hard to learn anything new in a neurochemical environment of in the neurochemical environment of fear. If you're afraid, your body's getting ready to fight or flight or freeze. And when you're in that mode, you're not in the learning mode or the enjoyment of the universe mode. You're in the, oh my gosh, I have to survive mode. Remember, the brain is in service of survival. If you're trying to teach your child something, spanking is not the way to do it. Talking to them, loving them, and having a relationship with them and having consistent and predictable expectations are the way to teach somebody something new in a calm environment. That's how we learn. Otherwise, we would send kids to school and make it really, really scary so they could learn a whole bunch of things. But that's not how we do school. School's supposed to be fun and enjoyable, and we're supposed to love learning. Doesn't sound like spanking. All right, we have the science so we can socially and culturally change from a punishment model or a harm model to a discipline model, which means disciple and to teach. And people always say, this is, people always say, well, I really want to teach my children to be good people, or I want to teach my children this. Well, that means discipline, and discipline does not include harm or punishment. It includes teaching. It includes showing and modeling and exactly that, teaching them how to do something in a different way that's more appropriate than the way they were doing it before. Everyone feels better and it leads to a more cooperative and loving environment when parents have a roadmap through development. What to expect from children at different ages and stages. Personally, from my perspective, as a clinical psychologist, as an early childhood educator, advocate, I think that the one thing that we could do for parents more that would be more helpful than anything else is to really provide that roadmap, to teach people as a normal part of life, just like we focus on reading and literacy, we focus on development and teach people what to expect as humans actually develop and how they change and grow and are different from when they're three months old or one month old or six months old to two years old to four years old to eight years old to 12-year-olds. These are all different, very, very different stages of life with different skills and different needs. 
And as parents, we really do need to be experts in our own children's child development. So this is this is one of the places where I'm optimistic about building a system of education that focuses on resiliency and teaches parents and people what they need to know about children at different ages and stages. Once we have parents learning about ages and stages, we also need to provide some tried and true ideas for what to do with their children and what to say to help things make things clear to children. Because one of the things is communicating with a child isn't always easy. They don't understand the world the way an adult understands the world. They understand the world very differently, in fact, And so we have to speak the language of the child in order for them to know what our expectations are for them. And that really requires a communication class with children. I know this sounds like a lot, but in reality, if we integrate this into our educational process and becoming a parent and a social process, it doesn't have to be that hard. We haven't done this before for parents, we really just leave them alone and let them figure it out, you know, trial and error. But this is a dangerous way to raise a society and to raise children. Remember how helpful it was when we had Nanny 911 and people would like have the nanny come in and, you know, get a handle on their out of control children? Well, I I do think that there are way more families who are just in total chaos, out of control, than we really want to believe. And maybe, maybe your family is that family. We don't know what to do to rein things in and get a handle back on our children. The truth is, though, that children want parents to be in charge. Children are terrified. Here's one, one snippet of truth is that children are scared and know that they're not capable of taking care of themselves. They need somebody to take care of them in order to survive. Ideally, that's their parents. So when parents act and communicate to children in ways that send the message, the key message, and you can say these exact words, I'm your parent, I need to make sure that you're safe and taken care of, and in order to do that, you need to behave in this way, talk to me in this way, do this in this way, and if you can't, then we're going to have to have a pause and figure out what we're going to do in order to keep you safe, because that's my job and that's what I want to do, and I love you and I want you to grow up to be an adult in a healthy world. I know that sounds super oversimplified, but the truth is it's really that simple. Children are afraid and we need to protect them from the world. And so by saying that to them is perfectly fine. They don't know what we know about the world because they're little and they haven't figured out all the ins and outs. That's our job to teach them. And we teach them one step at a time. So let's jump into some actionable takeaways. I would really love to hear your response to this episode because spanking is such a hot topic. And I imagine, and I know from more of the research that, you know, our mental health is being challenged with COVID. 
ab- child abuse is up because of COVID, and yet we're not necessarily talking specifically about spanking and what um, the consequences are of that in terms of long-term social determinations of health and what that means. So let's talk about some quick actionable takeaways. One is remember, 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 connection is key. When children do things that might, quote, call for a spanking, like lie, cheat, or steal, which children just do because at at certain periods of time in their lives, children actually believe that what they want is the truth. So if I want a cookie, even if you say that it's not okay for me to have it because I want it, I should have it, and that's true, so it's okay for me to take it. Now, that would that way of thinking makes the situation of eating a cookie, if you really believe that it's no big deal, and then you get a spanking for it, super confusing. That's just how that's just how children's brains think differently. We differently. We can't think of children as mini me's. They're not. They don't have the rational side of the brain. They think about things differently. Three and four year olds also believe in. They have a really hard time differentiating between fantasy and reality. And so when we talk about things like the scary monster in the closet or the boogeyman or whatever, something like that their little brains don't have the capacity to differentiate between what's real and what's not real. And so that is way more terrifying for a child in that age range, even up to five and six sometimes, than it is for an older child or a teenager or an adult. So just understanding a few things about how a child's brain operates differently than an adult's brain can go a really long way for parents. So if a child does something that quote unquote calls for a spanking and then have lost control of themselves and need help re like reconnecting and repairing and restitution. So these are the three R's, reconnecting, repairing, and restitution. So when children do something that they're not supposed to do, parents can and should, I'm gonna use the should word, reconnect with their children in a loving way so everybody can move on. Help the child to figure out how to repair whatever it is that they did that they weren't supposed to do because this is where the teaching comes in for next time. And if the thing that they did was harmful to somebody else, teach them again how to make restitution, how to do something to make up for the thing that they did that hurt somebody else. So if they kick the dog, maybe they do something nice for the dog. Or if they hurt their sibling, maybe they find a way to make it up to their sibling in a way that's kind and makes restitution. So see, we're focusing more on the teaching and long-term life skills of becoming a grown-up contributing citizen of the of our society rather than a punishment and reward like jail system of our society. This is where parents come in and yes, it takes time, but it's totally worth it in the long run. It's it it's so worth it. This is why we have kids. We dig our kids. We love them to pieces and we end up spanking them or doing stuff like that that's punitive because we're so afraid that something bad will happen to them and we're we're scared. 
But the truth is that we can love them across their lifespan. All right, so another thing is we get all caught up in this thing called time out. You know, go in your room, go to the corner, whatever. No, bring kids in, especially little kids, time in so we can co-regulate. I used to, when my granddaughter was two and a half, three, and she would throw these like really big, you know, kind of lose it fits. And I would always just hold on to her and she would fuss about it. And I would hold her close to my chest and just say, okay, we're going to have a time in now and we're going to, you know, I want you to borrow my feelings. And I would say exactly those words because that's what I wanted her to do was to borrow my calm to help her settle down. And I said, I know this makes you so mad, huh? And she would say, yes. And I would say, but it feels so good too, right? And she would say, yes, you know, because she's a baby. She's little and even though she was mad, she also really needed me to be the grown-up and to help her through her own scary feelings. So I hope that makes sense to you. So remember, we're teaching children their, to find their social-emotional strength over their physical strength and to sort of understand their emotionalness rather than might is right. If I can beat you up, then I win. No, if you can control your feelings and talk about your feelings, that's when you really do win. The third actionable takeaway is to just buy a child development book. Learn appropriate expectations for appropriate ages and stages and just pull it off the shelf when you need to, depending on the age of your children. Uh, one one great book, I'll do a shout out for Dr. Barry Brazelton. His book's called Touchpoints, and I love Barry Brazelton, so that's a great one. Another one that I like, it's a little bit, um, it's about moral development. There's some questionable, there's some questionable things about it in terms of um, cultural awareness, in terms of the research on moral development, and... So, but at the same time, I actually like it just because I think it has a lot of really good, concrete, easy, straightforward information. And it's called Raising Good Children by Thomas Lacona. So if anybody wants to give me feedback on that, if it doesn't seem culturally appropriate, I'd be sure, you know, love to hear that. Um, All right. And the fourth, the fourth actionable takeaway from tonight is set up rather than a spanking, you know, rather than having a spanking situation all the time, set up a purpose chore system. And I'm going to put that link, I'm going to have that link in the show notes because I did a YouTube video on how the purpose chore system works. And then I had a parent of a 12-year-old actually write to me and say, oh my gosh, look what I did. I set this up and it works fabulously. So I thought, and I've taught the purpose chore system, and I also have called it job cards in the past, if you've heard it called that. It works a variety of ways, but it's an amazing process. I really feel like I should make it into a, I should just sell the kits, but then people wouldn't get to build them themselves, and I don't really want to do that. So anyway, That's it for today, folks. That's our show on spanking. I hope that I've stirred some some feelings in you, and I 
Hope you decide to let go of that practice and move forward with some new strategies. And I look forward to talking to you next time. Go out, leave a life print, and I love you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I appreciate the opportunity to connect with you. If you're interested in booking a training, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at my website, Dr. B Connections. There's a big button that says, book a training with Dr. B. It's that easy. If this show has been beneficial for you, please share it with your friends and family. Spreading the word about the show helps us grow our audience and helps continue to change the world together. Again, thanks so much for listening to Delusional Optimism. Now, go leave a life friend.